When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Talking Tactics. This is our World Cup preview, our last one, Group H. Uh, my name's Daniel, by the way. Pavel, friendly, friendly. Yeah, man. Uh, again, we're at Talking Tactics on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, um, on iTunes. We're there. Wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. We're always there. We're always there. We're always there. Um, so, yeah, this is our last group. You know, it's been a long process, but we're here. Which country do you want to start out with, man? There's no real favorites. Maybe let's start j- with, with Japan, man. Let's start with Japan. Let's, 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 let's start with Japan. Um, I wish Carl was here because he would talk to us about Japan's 100-year plan. He's not, even, he's not even Japanese, man. So how does he know that about Japan? He reads. We don't read. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Reading is is is, is over. It's actually. Um, I, I think I, I you know I just bought a book that I think I, I may have to recommend to him that I think he will like. But um, I'm about I'm about to read it by the head a lot. I'm the of this rapper called Akala. Yeah. Oh, he just brought out a book. That's all about basically his upbringing, his life, race, and all that kind of stuff. I saw him being interviewed about it, so I, I'm actually staring at it right now. So I'm very intrigued as to what's what's in store. Very interesting. Yeah, man, Akala's outside. dope. Akala's dope. But uh, yeah. let's let's um, get to Japan, man. So what do we know about Japan outside well, of Shinji Kagawa and... So basically, I, I watched um, the Champions League final with some Japanese um, amigos, acquaintances. Hmm. So I just asked them, hey, so what do you think about Japan? And they were all like, no, no hope. <laughs> So, so basically, so they they, 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 they don't have, have hope. There's no hope. Yeah, no hope. Yeah, they, they have no hope at all that they'll that they're gonna make it through the group. So very low, 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 low expectations. You know, so like like Honda's ship sailed. Kagawa's up there as well. I mean, yeah, he's too old. He's he's not, he's not the same the guy. They like they don't have any kind of current star in their team. So. I got that same kind of vibe from Dan Orlowitz. Dan, I'm going to try to pronounce your Twitter handle correctly. I don't speak Japanese, so if I mess this up, I apologize. It's Ashitiro Tokyo. Really, really informative. It kind of goes down that same road and just kind of the state of Japanese football, which is very interesting. So this is the conversation that I had with Dan. My name is Dan Orlowitz. Uh, my Twitter is Aishiru Tokyo, and I am a writer, photographer, translator, and opinionator uh, about Japanese football uh, for uh, Football Tribe and a number of other uh, sites and projects and podcasts. I think that uh, most people, when they think of Japanese sports, they think of baseball and sumo, but actually uh, football is probably the second most popular sport 
in the country. It's got a very long history going uh, way back, even 100 years, maybe a bit more. The national team is the most popular team of any sport in the country. They are just huge. And the fact that this is going to be the, the team's sixth straight World Cup appearance, I mean, we're such a long way from uh, the dark ages of the 70s and 80s and 93 when Japan famously uh, failed to qualify for the U.S. Uh, World Cup in 1994. So on the on the long view, uh, Japan has really become a football nation. Not quite there yet. A lot of things that need to be done to make it a football nation. But compared to 30 years ago, it's night and day. It's a culture that I think values the assist nearly as much as it values the goal. I find myself most often screaming at the TV when everyone wants to set up the goal and no one wants to take the damn shot. And that's, that tends to be the, the problem with Japan. Nobody takes the damn shot. And if you get a couple players in there who will, maybe something will happen. Mm. This is the sixth straight time they've qualified for the World Cup, which I find kind of interesting. Is Asia kind of a, a cakewalk for Japan, or would you say they, they struggled this time? Everyone thinks at face value that Asian qualification is a cakewalk for Japan, South Korea, Australia, Iran, and occasionally Saudi Arabia, depending on how their form is from cycle to cycle. Um, Japan's uh, first group was uh, Syria, Singapore, Afghanistan, and Cambodia. They went uh, 7-1-0, finished 22 points, went on to the next round, no problem. Uh, In the next group, technically the third round of qualifying, they got... Saudi Arabia, Australia, UAE, Iraq, and Thailand, which was a really interesting group on paper. Uh, They got to face the Socceroos, who have become uh, Japan's biggest rival politically and emotionally. uh, South Korea are Japan's biggest rival. Thing is that we never really play South Korea, uh, whereas in the last, I think, three World Cup qualifying cycles, we've faced Australian qualifiers, Uh, There was obviously the 2011 Asian Cup final, uh, which was a very big deal. And so the Socceroos have sort of stepped in. And so it's a much more less politically charged rivalry, which Mm. suits a lot of us just fine. You know, yes, the the political aspect adds a bit of spice to things, but it's nice to not have the baggage of that. And so as as to, to sum up the third round... Uh, Japan did what they had to do. They finished first in the group. They qualified with with a massive win against Australia at home. And I think it was the first uh, time they had beaten Australia in a meaningful match at at Saitama Stadium. That was sort of the high point of the cycle. And uh, now two months, in fact, less than two months before the World Cup starts, and uh, we've got a new manager uh, because uh, Vahid Halilhojic was sacked with two months to go. And now we've got Akira Nishino, who was the technical director. And we've got Colombia, Poland, and Senegal waiting for us. So, <laughs> good, good luck. Good luck. I'm happy you brought that up because I was going to ask you, is there any indication on how you guys are going to play, seeing as you've had a coach for like two months? I don't want to get too into the the, polit- the politics of the massive botch job that the JFA has committed uh, in doing this, uh, but Akira Nishino is, um, he's not a newcomer, he's not uh, by any means a rookie. Uh, he led uh, Gambo Osaka over nearly a decade uh, over their, their golden 
uh, era, essentially. He won the league, the J League with them. He won the Asian Champions League with them. Uh, he did very well at the Club World Cup with them. He won uh, several other uh, domestic titles with them. He's qualified as a coach. He's been around for about uh, a year and a half, two years as technical director. So it's not like he's uh, totally unfamiliar with the program. He knows okay. the players. Uh, the players should be comfortable with him. The players may be even more comfortable with him than they were under Vahid, but that's sort of another story entirely, and that gets into the, the issues of, of the firing itself. Now, I think that all of the uh, veteran players who were on the bubble are feeling a lot better about their chances, especially Honda, especially Kagawa, uh, especially Okazaki, especially Yoshida. And so part of why Vahid got fired, um, and this is a bit of inside baseball, is that a lot of people believe that there was uh, external pressure from the JFA's two biggest sponsors, Adidas, the, the team's equipment supplier, and uh, Kieran Beveridge, who sponsored the, the friendlies and the training kits and all that, but uh, major, major, major sponsors, they wanted to see Honda and Kagawa front and center because mm. it's a, a lot harder to uh, sell the team without them. After they both spent about half a year in the doghouse, that may have been one of the reasons behind why uh, the JFA made their decision. And if you listen to the reports and the rumors and this and that, then they, they were essentially two of the players who went to Kozo Tashima, the chairman of the JFA, and said that they weren't happy. And that's part of what led to Vahid's firing. Nishino was going to want the team to go back to sort of the attractive passing football, which everyone for years has insisted is Japan's style, even though it's never quite worked as well as it should be. And I think part of why they brought Vahid Hojic on and why they fired him is because he was trying to figure out Japan's style and he was close. I think a lot of us think that he was either going to get, he was either going to get there or he was going to flame out spectacularly. Uh, I mean, I'm from Philadelphia. I, you know, we've got the 76ers and I'm, I'm a big fan of trusting the process. And <laughs> we didn't get to see that process play out. Mm. And that's left a bad taste in everyone's mouth. And, you know, Nishino is going to push for sort of attractive attacking football, sort of uh, keep calm and get the ball to Honda, except that I don't think that that's going to work. To sum things up, we don't quite know what the tactics are going to be, but formation-wise, like I said, I think 4-2-3-1. As far as how the groups is going to look before this coaching change, the most optimistic result I could have hoped for is 1-1-1. One, one, and one. I think that you take the L against Colombia, get a win against Senegal, and you pray for a result against Poland. I think you do that and you slip in second place. Uh, and that would have been Japan's way to the round of 16. Now, who knows? Uh, there's a, a, a sense that even if Nishino does manage to get uh, Japan to the knockout stage, you know, we've sort of learned nothing. They put on a Band-Aid and, you know, we limped across the finish line, but we've sort of just erased everything and, you know, we're going to go back to square one. Uh, yeah, uh, that's, it's a very, very broad conversation and not necessarily one that's going to have a conclusion in the next six months or in the next year. Uh, but they have, it's not put up or shut up time, but they have to eventually agree that there will be a put up or shut up time and that we are heading towards it, not away from it. Mm. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? 
it's obvious it won't be Japan. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, it's not fun anymore. Uh, it's <laughs> like, I mean, like, like really, my I could call up my grandmother and ask her who who's going to win the World Cup, and she'll say Germany, Brazil, or Argentina. Like, it's not even worth it to give the hot take and say Panama. <laughs> I think that I think that France and Germany they could each put their B teams. Uh, out there, and they could still at least make it to the round of 16. Uh, so I, I think that it's... Um, one of those two. Yeah, I think, yeah, one of those two. I think yeah, I think Germany, Brazil, and France, and okay. uh, maybe Argentina. All right, so last question. Um, Is there anything about the Japanese national team that I haven't asked you that you feel is particularly interesting and you think people should know? Hmm. More than the players, I think anytime there's World Cup... Uh, there's a lot of talk about the Japanese fans and how great they are and how they bring that they brought the trash bags and they cleaned up after themselves after Brazil and that sort of thing. That sort of tends to be the default feel good story. It's a cliche, but there's uh, you know there is a lot to be said for how uh, passionate people in Japan are for the national team and for the sport as a whole. Um, I know I've got a, a, fr- a good friend who travels the, ro- the world to watch Japan play. He does this charity group to help people up in uh, the Tohoku area who were affected by the March 11th earthquake. And uh, this is the second uh, World Cup in a row where they're, uh, they've raised money to bring kids who are still living in like shelters and that sort of thing. And they're bringing like a few kids to Russia to watch a couple, uh, I think one World Cup game. And uh, I, I do hope that people listening to this, you know, will, you know, look into the J-League um, because I think a lot of people who are fans of Japan, they know the national team, they know Honda, they know Kagawa, they know Captain, Captain Tsubasa, but they don't know so much about the league. They don't know so much about the culture. So listen, if you're coming to Japan and you want to go to a baseball game or a sumo match because you've heard that's, you know, that's what's up, like go to a, go to a football game. The J-League's match day atmosphere, if you're going by yourself, if you're with friends, if you're with family, if you're with your girlfriend, if you're with your parents, if you're with your kids, best match day atmosphere in the world. One of the safest match day atmospheres in the world, one of the most affordable, and one of the most fun. Um, and so I hope that anyone listening to this who's, th- who's thought about paying more attention to the league and maybe visiting here and going to match will do that. It's fantastic. And whatever happens in the World Cup, uh, Japan is going to be entering a, re- a rebuilding phase. This is the last World Cup for a lot of the most famous players that the cycle has produced. Uh, but it should be exciting to see uh, who steps up next. And you've got the Olympics coming up. You've got the Asian Cup coming up. And uh, hopefully some good things come out of it. Um, Colombia. Now, I guess the surprise package in a way, uh, along with Costa Rica in the 2014 World Cup, breakout star James Rodriguez and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if they're primed to be in the same kind of position this season. Or not this season, but this World Cup. Mm. But I think the group helped them a bit. They could have got a worse group than this one. I mean, obviously, there's parity in the group. But I think, generally speaking, people would say Colombia are the best team in the group. Which is why, like, Colombia, they're looking good, man. They were very good in South American qualifying. I think they finished third. And I still think that James Rodriguez has something in him. You know, shaky for four years since 2014, where he was the player of the tournament. I still think he's got something to prove. But you've got him, you've got Carlos Baca, you've got Cuadrado. You know, you've, you've got a team, man. You've, you've got you've got some, some some players up in this, you know, 
I think I knew what you were gonna say. Yeah, yeah. man, it's they, they have they have a good squad up and down. I think you know Davis and Sanchez, all those guys. Um, it's a, it's an interesting squad to to watch. I'm super excited for their game against Senegal because the goal celebrations are gonna be incredible. Yeah, I just I, I like Colombia as a team. We can talk about like drug money and all that kind of stuff. But actually, I think Simon. Um, Simon Edwards references that in the conversation that we had. So we might as well just, just throw that conversation in there now. So this is the conversation that I had with Simon Edwards, who's a journalist based in Medellin. Um, we talked about Colombia, a whole bunch of stuff. So this is him. Yeah, my name's Simon Edwards, uh, based in Medellin, Colombia. Uh, I do podcasts and do bits and pieces for World Football Index. You can find me on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. Obviously, the late 80s into the 90s, Colombian football was was great. And, you know, part of that is associated with what maybe springs to mind when you hear Colombia. You think of drugs, you think of Pablo Escobar. That played an impact on football as well. In the 90s, some of the Colombian teams were the best in the world. Uh, America de Cali got to Copa Libertadores over and over again. Nacional won. Uh, Colombian players were staying in Colombia, playing together. And it helped build a really strong national team as well because they were used to playing together week to week. They had a very good squad. Colombia is a football crazy country. It's a big country as well. People maybe don't realize how big it is. So in Colombia, each region is very, very much different culture. The connection between the different cities historically hasn't been very strong in terms of infrastructure. So it's basically a country made up of five or six different regions, which have big cities, have two or three clubs each. So there's everything in place, a football mad country with multiple major cities, with multiple big clubs, a history of good passing football if you think back to 94 the Colombian team was in terms of passing before the World Cup people were tipping Colombia to win the thing and again all of the things that enabled Colombia to get to that point in terms of the drugs and some of the bad stuff people associate also kind of brought an end to that dream in terms of the pressure on the players the violence in the country corruption all of these things kind of got on top so Colombia had a really difficult period in the mid 90s where they were kind of trying to move away from that Uh, and I think now they have there are in terms of where Colombian football is now I think in terms of young players, it's one of the best places to find young players. Um, But I think perhaps some of the tactical aspects still need a bit of work. So I think Colombia has the potential to be on par with Argentina and Brazil. And I think since 2014, which was a really breakout year for Colombia, we're starting to see that on the world stage. There's still stuff to do, but I think it's a very interesting country to watch in terms of international impact in the future. Mm. How did South American qualification go for, for Colombia in that aspect? So 2014 was obviously a huge success for Colombia. They hadn't been mm. at the tournament since 1998, finally qualified again, and they did really well. I think they lost to Brazil. You know, people make a lot of things about that game was focused on the Neymar injury. But if you watch that game, the, the Brazilian midfield was taking it in turns to foul James Rodriguez. Brazil knew in 2014 that Colombia were a better football inside than they were. And they focused 100% of their efforts on disrupting Colombia. And again, it was a bit of a, it turned into a tit for tat kind of back and forth, you foul me, we foul you kind of game. But you could see very early that the Brazilians really respected Colombia at that tournament. Since that World Cup, Atletico Nacional, one of the big Colombian teams, won the Copa Libertadores with an incredible side. And many of those players have been trying to be incorporated into the national team. So they've brought, I think, 60 players have been used since 2014. So if you're Colombian and half decent, you've probably got a call, which has been one of the issues. So much of the success in 2014 was about the unity of the camp and a bit of consistency. Um, And that's been what's been lacking. So Colombia did qualify. They took it down to the final game, but they never really had that, that flow, that unity, 
that balance. So many different tactical changes, personnel changes. Colombia were very reactionary. They were picking the players for the occasion and they picked so many. I think in terms of the talent, I think right now we're potentially stronger, but the the, the journey to this point has been a little bit more complicated than perhaps we would have liked. That said, South American qualifying is so tough. Colombia qualified, that's the objective principally, but there's a lot of work doing in terms of building a, a solid team with that cohesion and that, that unity, which is so important. While, while the team hasn't been performing as well as it was before 2014, I think the, the personnel is probably stronger. Um, so it's a kind of a weird situation. It, it could be a disaster, and Colombia haven't done anything in the last four years to suggest that they're as good as I hope they might be. But, you know, if we look back to the friendly recently, they, they were 2-0 down against France, and they came back to win 3-2. I think that kind of personality against a top European opponent is a good indicator. In terms of where the squad is, I think there's been some upgrades. Goalkeeper will be the same, David Ospina. Again, he's had a bit of a dip in form, but for Colombia, <laughs> he's been very good generally. Mm. Uh, the commentators, whenever he makes a save, they say, tu tranquilo, like, you relax, he's got it. And that doesn't seem so apt anymore, but um, he's definitely a popular figure and an un- un- undoubted number one for Colombia. In defence, they've got a combination of Davidson Sanchez, who's been at Tottenham. Very, very impressive first year in England. Big and strong and quick. Alongside possibly Jerry Mina or Christian Zapata. Those defensive pairing is an upgrade in terms of physicality and in terms of pace on what Colombia had previously with, with Mario Jepes. So I think those two are going to be a big, big boost. That fullback, Frank Fabra, very, very attacking left back. Box to box, place for Boca Juniors. One to watch as well. Very, very good attacking fullback. The other side, Santiago Arias, who played this year with PSV Eindhoven. He's joining Juventus, it looks like, in the next couple of months. So again, another very good attacking fullback. In front of that, there's some questions. It's probably going to be Carlos Sanchez, who played for Aston Villa. And again, if you followed him at Aston Villa, you'd think, what, what is he doing at the World Cup? But, but for Colombia, he is, he is a rock. Um, he, is, uh, he is one of the best players for Colombia. He's all over the place, winning everything. Big, big player for Colombia. And alongside him, it's either going to be Abel Aguila. He's a very consistent, solid, experienced, the, the voice of the coach on the pitch. Mm. So he has a value, but he's played terribly in Colombian domestic football. He's come back to Colombia. So it's, it's difficult. It's a question of his national team form has always been good, but he hasn't played a good game in club football for six months. So if not him, then there's Mateo Soribe, who's very interesting box-to-box midfielder plays for America in Mexico, linked at the moment with Real Madrid. Very exciting player. Or Wilma Barrios, who plays for Boca Juniors. Uh, and then in front of that, we'll have James Rodriguez as a number 10, ideally, I think. Juan Cadrado on the right, again, very, very important player. Very quick, very skillful, plays at Juventus. And on the left is the question, either the pace and the directness of Isqueiro, maybe. Uh, Muriel, who plays in Spain, pacey and direct. Or the more subtle, technical Edwin Cardona, who plays for Boca Juniors. And then up front, Falcao is the obvious first choice. And then there's the alternatives of maybe a Miguel Borja, who plays in Palmeiras, a bit more, you know, he puts himself about a lot, misses some chances, but he's a big physical, pacey presence. Or Carlos Baca, who's more of a direct uh, number nine. Or maybe uh, Duan Zapata, who's a bit of a Colombian Emil Heskey, a big lump who, <laughs> who wins the ball, plays it down. Uh, makes a nuisance of himself. So I think the Colombian squad is looking strong and there's a lot of players who currently in South America who are on their way to Europe 
who maybe could be breakout stars of this tournament. So there's lots of positives, but again, it's whether they can make it gel or make it work on the on the two weeks, hopefully, that they'll be there. Um, so yeah, man, you just kind of ran me through the 11. So it, it sounds like a really good team. Saying that, though, a, a lot of people would earmark the group with Argentina, Nigeria, Croatia, and Iceland as the group of death. I look at Group H, and I think this is probably the toughest group. Um, what is the kind of temperature of Colombian fans in that sense? Um, Colombians are, are very passionate. You know, as with, I think, many countries in the world will be massively optimistic and then massively pessimistic. I think there's absolutely no easy games and I can see 10 ways that Colombia can slip up against all of their opponents. But also my overriding feeling is that um, things could go badly, but I think Colombia have the quality to expect to progress from this group. And then you look ahead and, you know, I'm English, so I, I might be in England watching Colombia play England with split loyalties or, or pay perhaps Belgium. So if Colombia do get out of the group, then they're going to have a big high profile European side, probably in the second round. So that's going to be interesting too. But that's the kind of game that Colombia wants. If you look back at Colombia's history, it's these big, big ties that kind of define them. The, the, the draw in Germany in 1990, where they completely passed Germany off the park, but just never got around to scoring. And then they conceded in the 80th, fifth minute and immediately scored and showed that they could have done that the whole time. That's kind of a big game in Colombia, the, the 5-1 against Argentina. So Colombia really wants to have one of those big moments. Who are players who you think this is going to be their time to shine in that sense? Uh, yeah, well, I've, I've mentioned a few. I think uh, Jenny Mina um, has joined Barcelona for a, a decent-sized deal. It looks like he may be joining Liverpool on loan now. Um, and Barcelona fans have, have seen four games of Mina in a very heavily rotated side, a bit of adaption to European football. I think a lot of Barcelona fans think they've bought a load of rubbish. <laughs> and I, I really hope that Jenny Mina can play at his true level in the World Cup because he is incredible. He has the physical attributes to be one of the best defenders in the world. Barcelona fans haven't seen any of that yet. So this could be a big, big tournament for him. I think there's lots of places where Colombia could impress, but I think Mina in defence... Barrios or Mateo Soribe in midfield, and then perhaps uh, Edwin Cardona on the big stage kind of get, makes a name for himself on the wing. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? Oof, well, I, I saw Colombia against France, and in the first half, France were incredible. And then in the second half, they conceded three goals. Uh, but I think on paper, they're very, very strong. Argentina are very, very lucky to be there. The fullbacks are poor. Defensive midfield is very, very weak. Argentina have some big, big problems. If Argentina do well, then that is further promotion for the for the myth, the legend that is Lionel Messi. Because without Messi, they wouldn't be at the World Cup. No chance they would have qualified. They, they, their points total without Messi would put them, I think, bottom of the South American qualifiers. Wow. With Messi, they're one of the top teams. So they're they're a hundred percent Messi dependent. They have no fullbacks. From a South American perspective, I think there's some teams who didn't qualify for the World Cup who feel aggrieved that uh, Argentina are there in their place. So in terms of Brazil, I think Brazil are very, very good, very balanced, very good manager. So I'd say Brazil, for me, I definitely want to watch Argentina. Perhaps watch Collapse. They could be a surprise elimination in the group stage. And last question. Is there anything I haven't asked you about Colombian football or the Colombian national team that you feel is important or interesting that you feel people should want to know? Yeah, well, for me, um, I'm English. So for me, national team football 
is something the players are reluctantly dragged off to do. Nobody really enjoys it. Um, so for me, following Colombia is such a breath of fresh air because mm. all of the players love it. From meeting up with the team, you know, dancing salsa, a bit of salsa choque, you know, salsa mixed in with a bit of urban music. It's, uh, yeah, so, I, you know, I would say enjoy Colombia on the field, but also enjoy Colombian Instagram, the players' Instagrams, because there'll be all kinds of mad dance routines, Jerry Mina twerking, you know, Hamid Rodriguez <laughs> awkwardly trying to do the salsa that the rest of the guys do. Yeah, so honestly, everything around the team is just as fun and it, it's really colourful. It's really a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of, you know, oh, flavour. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's to see how much the players love playing for Colombia makes it a joy to support the team and follow them. So get involved in all of that and enjoy the fun. You know, next country, I think we should go to Poland. This is it's basically Lewandowski or bust at this point. I mean, no, look, man, Milik, I think is is a, is a, is, a, is a crucial component, you know, because because we, Lewandowski can't do everything. Did didn't we see what Milik did in the Euros? Like he didn't know how to shoot. Yeah, yeah no, striker. no, no, no. Like, no I, I think someone gave him the wrong instruction book as to how football works. I think <laughs> he thought that uh, missing is actually good and scoring is bad. So. Yeah, man. It was like the goal was the thing that's not to be hit. Just shoot it anywhere yeah. except that fishnet thing, and you get a point. He's like, "Oh, really?" Uh, but yeah, man. I mean, the, the the chances he had, I think, against Germany in the group stage, or maybe it was Lulukman Misik, man. That was that was his name, Misik. Just it, it's a okay squad, but it's so it's over reliant on the goals that Lewandowski provides, and if he doesn't score, they're going to struggle to get through. Um, uh, yeah, that's basically the, the key thing is how much work because Lewandowski wants to to do all do, do all the work, but I think if he does too much, then it's it's not going to be of of benefits to, to to them. And if he has to have too much of a burden, then it's advantage Senegal and Colombia. So so yeah, this is about the time where we're going to bring in our guest for Poland. Um, this is Christopher Lash, who you can find on Twitter at Right Bank Warsaw. We had a really good conversation. Hopefully, you guys enjoy it. This is it. My name's Christopher Lash. Actually, I'm an academic. I live in Poland. I, I was a historian, actually, but uh, it's a very long, uh, complicated reason why I'm here. But anyway, I'm here and I'm happy. And uh, basically, on Twitter, you can find me at Right Bank Warsaw. That's my Twitter handle. Last six years, I've been sort of covering the Polish league, mostly just on, on my own sort of on the side. I've got a blog, rightbankwarsaw.com. Uh, I also do a podcast, uh, Right Bank Warsaw, which hopefully will be active a little bit during the World Cup as well. I mostly focus on the Polish league, but also, you know, keep tracks on what, what's happening with Polish footballers abroad and the, the Polish national team. Historically, Poland's been a counter-attacking team. You know, they achieved a lot of success. I think they're like about eighth or ninth in the whole in the World Cup uh, table historically because they made a couple of semi-finals in uh, 74 and in 82. Uh, 74 wasn't technically a semi-final because it was a second group, but they, they got third place. They beat Brazil in a third place game in 74. 82, uh, they lost to Italy in the World Cup semi-final. So uh, they've historically had a bit of success in the World Cup. Traditionally, I mean, in 74, when it was the brilliant um, Dutch team, uh, everyone knows with Cruyff and stuff and um, a good German team as well with uh, Beckenbauer and uh, with uh, Muller, Gerd Muller, the striker. I think not enough um, attention has been focused on Poland's team in 74 because it was a really excellent team, played brilliant, really good football, scored a lot of goals. In, in that respect, uh, Poland's got quite a, a good history, but they haven't got out of a group stage since 86. They lost to Brazil in the second round in 86-4-0. Yeah, it's been a while since they've like done very well, especially in the World Cup. 
So, so what is Polish football culture like? Is it like a football mad nation? It's definitely the national sport by far. I mean, mm. if you look at countries like the, the Czech Republic, I think they call it Czechia now, and countries around Poland who are actually, they, they like hockey. Ice hockey is the, the, really the national sport in the Czech Republic. It's similar with football. In, in Poland, it's easily the national sport. And, uh, you know, um, provincial governors and local communities, there's a lot of money spent by the state on stadiums, on financing football sides. So it's important business here. I mean, it's not like in England where no country in the world really is like England in terms of the the sheer just depth of football culture in England. But yeah, they're, they're big fans here. They're big fans. I mean, um, but a little bit of fair weather, you know, when Poland does well, everyone's in a, you know, gets involved and, and sometimes when they don't, it sort of everyone's just depressed and very <laughs> negative. So, so they, they, they go, go up and down quite a lot. Could you kind of walk me through Poland's qualification process? How did that go? It was a pretty easy qualification in general. Not very many uh, challenges. I mean, the group that they got was relatively easy. You know, the, the only major problem they had was with the Danish, especially in the second game. They beat the Danish 3-2 in the first game. I was, I was actually at that game. and They were pretty dominant. The Danes came back and got it back to 3-2. But in the second game, um, they Poland lost 4-0 to Denmark away. Uh, but that was really the only hurdle that they had. And then they beat, you know, Romania away 3-0 really easily. Um, so it was a pretty easy group for them. Lewandowski who's obviously their, their star player, scored mil- a load of goals. I can't remember exactly how many, but scored loads of goals in the qualifiers as well for the Euros when Poland got to the quarters. Uh, but obviously in the main tournament, Lewandowski scored... He scored one, maybe. I can't remember in 2016. But, but you know, the, the qualifiers were quite easy. They scored loads of goals. They let in quite a lot. But, um, yeah, it was pretty easy. We have a country that generally plays good football, that qualified, most would say, comfortably. And we have a nation that as you call it, is kind of fair weather, which would suggest to me that most Poland fans are a bit happy with the team in this moment, given the qualification process. What would you say are the expectations then for this World Cup? Obviously, it's a very, very tough group. But what would you say is the general mood of Polish fans? Poles go, because they haven't had success for a while, especially in the World Cup, a lot of them go into it sort of thinking that it's going to go wrong. Uh, just generally negative uh, kind of perspective, but because um, that's what's happened in the last two World Cups there in 2006 and uh, uh, 2002. Uh, I think they lost the first two games both times and uh, therefore the last game was just, you know, a match for honour basically, but for nothing. But um, if we look at this one, I think that, you know, this is a great opportunity. I mean, Lewandowski is 20, 29 going on 30. You've got play, people like uh, Jakub Blaszczykowski who was at Dortmund, who's now 32, I think. Piszczek, who's still playing at, Dor- at Dortmund very well. It's also 32, so and Gleek's 30. So there's a lot of players who are kind of coming to their peak or coming over their peak, right? So this is a crucial tournament for them. And I think that if they don't get out of the group, it's it's a major, it's a major failure. But the problem is, is that if they do, they're going to play Belgium or England. Uh, to get to the quarters, it's going to be very difficult. So I think second round is is got to be the target. And then when they get there, a tough game is going to be in front of them. Mm, so the general mood is like, we expect you guys to get out of the group. Oh, oh 100%. What other team in that group has a player, Lewandowski, who scores 30 goals in the, the, yes. the Bundesliga every year? It, it's um, And people like Zielinski, who's now doing really well at uh, Napoli. Uh, you know, Malik's, Malik's there as well. There's a lot of up-and-coming up players there as well for the Polish team. But that group is, it's a weird group because it's a very even. Poland might not get out of it. I've seen people who, you know, have been saying that, you know, they're not going to make it. But but I think if they don't make the second round, there's going to be a, a real, uh, a, a massive state of depression, I think, in the country. <laughs> All right. So you yeah. kind of touched on something I wanted to get to. I mean, we, we know the usual suspects, if it's Lewandowski, Kuba, Piszczek, those guys. 
Um, who who are some young players who you feel like are in the squad or in and around the squad who you feel like they're primed to have a really good World Cup? The key player really is this is Zielinski, Piotr Zielinski, who's you know excellent passer of the ball, very intelligent, aware aware on the pitch. And the problem with someone like Zielinski, who's playing obviously at Napoli, who've had an absolutely superb season to that extent that uh, Zielinski, I don't think has played all the games, but now I think that Ham Hamshik is going to leave. So that just shows how much that you know Napoli trusts Zielinski because he's a kind of second playmaker or, you know, equal with Hamshik. And the, the problem recently has been basically how to get the most out of someone like Zielinski. There's been big discussion about, you know, in England, how England doesn't have a, a passing midfielder, an exciting, you know, ball-playing midfielder, because, you know, um, you know, Wilshire is injured and all that stuff. Well, Zielinski is that kind of player. He's the kind of player that makes things happen. I don't want to heap too much expectation on him because... He's a bit of a nervous kind of guy and he's had uh, some bad moments in the national team, but this could be his tournament. I guess speaking of someone whose tournament this should be, Lewandowski, I mean, as we kind of said before, I mean, he didn't really have a great Euros and that's kind of the taste that's left in everybody's mouth. How, how do you feel like he's going to do in this tournament? It's a difficult one. I mean, I think the narrative around Lewandowski now is that he doesn't do it in the big matches. I mean, mm. I, I actually didn't watch the the game against Real Madrid, but I heard that he made you know missed some chances he shouldn't have. He should have scored. Yeah. And uh, in general, there was a lot of discussion about how he you know he'd really not turned it on in the big game. He game you know he wasn't good in the in the Euros. I think that it was a bit of a weird Euros because you know what happened is that uh, when Poland qualified in 2016 or 15 or whatever they qualified, they were scoring loads of goals and it was really sort of like champagne football and then when they got to the finals the coach Adam Nawalka played quite uh, conservative football Poland did pretty well didn't score many goals but they uh, sort of pushed their way through I suppose the discussion basically or the, the kind of doubts are is when Poland gets the tournament this time is it going to be similar is it going to be the, the case that Nawalka is going to get scared and play you know score a goal and then try to conserve that lead. And if that is the way that Poland plays, then Lewandowski's not going to score many goals in this tournament because Poland aren't going to score many goals. Mm. But if Nawalka takes a chance and takes a bit of a risk, I doubt it. But maybe maybe it will happen. If that happens, then, you know, Lewandowski obviously in an open attacking side is going to score goals. The big question is whether how, how conservative Nawalka is going to be. Great segue because I have three questions left and my next one was... How does Poland look on the pitch structurally? If you could give me a glimpse into that. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not a massive tactical uh, man, but I, 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 know, I know this this part is called uh, is called talking tactics. So no, no, actually, talking tactics is like the biggest lie. <laughs> we we might talk tactics like two minutes out of like the hour. Like it's, it, it should be called talking points. It, I was just a sucker for alliteration at the beginning. So talking tactics, good. that sounds cool. Yeah, I mean, it, he sort of changed it around a bit. Um, I think that at times, a couple of years ago, he was playing even 4-4-2 with Milik and Lewandowski being the two main strikers. Uh, then for a while, Milik was out. So he's playing a bit, you know, 4-2-3-1. And um, recently he's been going with a 3-5-2 formation mm. uh, or at least testing it out. Which again seems to be have come back into into vogue. So there's a good chance they'll play three five two. And one of the good things about three five two, I think at least as far as I've, I'm aware, 
is that it's a formation which allows uh, Zielinski, who I've talked about before, to have enough um, defensive cover to allow him to make the defence splitting passes and take a bit more of a chance. So I probably think they're going to play 3-5-2. I might be wrong. Again, that would allow, you know, Zielinski uh, a bit more space with someone like Krihoviak, who's had a bad season in general, but West Brom had an awful season. Uh, Krihoviak probably behind him and either Krzysztof Monczynski, who plays for uh, Legia Warsaw, he actually plays in the domestic league, or the other one, probably Carol, Carol Linetti, who plays at Sampdoria. So that's typically what you're going to see, probably with Milik and uh, Lewandowski as the two strikers, uh, Zielinski behind. That would be my guess at the kind of um, how, how the team's going to look for the World Cup. Two questions left. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? Well, not Poland. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but I think that the four teams are probably France, Spain, Brazil, and Germany. I don't, I don't really know. One, one of those four. That's my, that's my answer. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, oh, great. No, it's it, whenever I ask that, it's funny just how people just like, <sighs> I don't know. One of those four teams is going to win. I don't know who to pick. It's always funny. All right, last question. Is there anything yeah. I haven't asked you about Polish football or Poland football culture or this Poland national team that you find particularly interesting that you think people might want to know or should know? Um, the thing that immediately comes to mind is is what I was saying before is that uh, the 74 team, <laughs> which was a really great team, played great football and scored a lot of goals, is, is sort of really not talked about with enough kind of reverence uh, as it should have been. And I think that Poland does have a quite good uh, World Cup history. The problem is, is that recently it's not been that good. This is really their big chance to show the world that they can do it. And uh, they were pretty good at the Euros. So I, I really hope, I mean, if they don't make the second round, I'm going to have to not be on Twitter for a month or so because everyone's just going to bloody be depressed as hell. So, <laughs> uh, so, so, so that, that's my answer. I think that, you know, that Poland wasn't, Poland hasn't been respected enough, enough historically. Uh, and this is their big chance to sort of show that they can do something. Last team of the World Cup that we're going to talk about for these previews. We're going to talk about Senegal, our guy Sadio Mane. I, I wanted to talk about this with our guest, which I'll get to in a bit, mm. but, I, but I didn't have time. Is he the only black coach, Alucise, in this tournament, or is there someone else? I, I think he might be the only one. I believe, I'm, I'm just trying to run through the teams. I believe all, that he is. All of the Afri all the, like the only other one that would have one is Nigeria, and they have Gernard Rohr. He is. So, very, he is the opposite of black. He is very blonde, <laughs> very white. So yeah, I wanted to talk about this, but I was like, you know, he's the only black coach. But and I, I look at that just for my own selfishness and just to see representation. But I love seeing like black people represented on touchlines. Like that's mm. something that's so cool to me as someone who's watched the game since you know I was like seven, eight years old. So uh, that aside, Senegal man, their team, at least in an attacking sense. It's, it's it's really I mean, good. Not, <laughs> no, no, no. There's sometimes just that. I mean, again, I look just look at them in the nations cup. I think they have a tendency just to not be able to click it and get it done. Like they, it's, like you will see at this World Cup, they're very talented, but maybe they lack that kind of ruthlessness that you really need. They have Mane, Kerabalde, Kuyate, Kuyate in midfield, Kulibali in defense, Kulibali in defense. I'm not sure who their goalkeepers are, but, um, you know, that spine, if you want to call it that, pretty damn good. But they have to get it done on the, on the pitch. And my danger is that I don't, I'm not sure that they'll, they'll know how to get it done on the, on the, on the my, pitch. My That's only it. worry would be 
I don't even want to bring that up. I haven't brought it up the whole podcast, so I don't want to bring that up. Um, so what are your expectations for Senegal then? I'm not too sold on Poland because of how because of how they looked in the friendly against Nigeria. The fact that Milik has been injured for for so long, Lewandowski hasn't really had a great season. So I'm not. So that's why somebody tells me that I'm looking at Senegal and Colombia to both go through. But at the same time, if Senegal don't really get it together and they miss too many chances, they're not professional enough in how they try and manage the game, then that is where I think Poland could, could sneak in. But I think Senegal should aim to come out of the, the, the group. Yeah, so this is our conversation with Amadi Thiam. You've probably seen his gifts on Twitter. Chelsea fan as well, so shout out to him. Uh, this is the conversation that I had with Amadi. Uh, my name is Amadi Chum. I'm an editorial assistant and social media manager for uh, What a Howler and whatahowler.com. That's Howler Magazine. And I'm also a feature writer for US Open Cup. To me, Senegalese football is, is many things. First, it is, it is an expressive game. Um, a lot of the African teams aren't necessarily lauded for their technical ability. However, Senegal is one of those teams who, who you should appreciate for having that. Um, a lot of their players are good in close control, especially their midfield and attacking players, and they play in teams with a conventional attacking style. For example, the Sadio Mane's, you know, the people who will stand out the most, um, even the Idrissa Gaze of Everton, they're playing mostly in these 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 formations. That, that gives a little leeway for the offensive side, but where they're really strong and where I think I'd find them most consistent is in defense. They have a similar style of play, I think, to what you would call, if you've watched recently, the Cameroonian national team, they have a lot of flair going forward, but in the back is where they're most resilient, in my opinion. So what you find when you watch them is that, you know, maybe they don't have the free-flowing nature of uh, the European sides like Spain comes to mind, and you know, the interchange, interchanging positions, etc. But what they do have is a good sense of responsibility for positions. Um, you rarely see much interchanging unless it's in the front three. And when you do, it's with purpose. So... While there aren't, you know, the the world beaters that you might see them, that we might imagine them to be after their first World Cup experience, what they've shown is an ability to beat teams by being resilient, and that's uh, I think that's a little bit a bit more coveted at this point. Mm, could could you kind of talk to me about your your manager, uh, Alucise? Like he was what he was the captain in two thousand two, if memory serves me correctly, yep. um, and he's kind of built an interesting career that that's got him to to be Senegalese manager in his current moment. Um, well, yeah, he was originally a member of Bruno Metsu's squad all those 16 years ago. And for me, at least, it's he'll never, he'll always live in, in forever, you know, in, in not, not in infamy, but in fame. And the Senegalese people I've spoken to, my cousins and family who live there still are, they still feel the same about him. However, um, understanding that he is, you know, a member of that previous team, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's trying to instill that same mentality or have the similar sort of outcome as that team did. That was a storybook, Cinderella, you know, first time, shock the world type experience. Now the world knows about Senegal. They know about Senegalese players. Mm. It's no longer the same sort of, you know, maybe snatch and grab style of play that they're looking for. And he feels that they need to impose themselves. He doesn't want them to be these timid and starstruck players. I mean, they're playing on levels and amongst players who are world class. And there is no reason for such trepidation. I think this is a quote um, direct from ESPN. He says, we'll have to go there, and he means there is Russia, without an insecurity complex, play our natural game and stick to our African identity, which defines our football. And I think that's a really important quote. As far as the African identity goes, you know, we, they're called the Lyon de Taranga, the Lions of Taranga, and they do play with some bite. Um, there's some, some players in there who are hard-nosed, known for it. And I think that 
comparatively to that previous team of which he was a, a part, this team has more confidence. Um, it's it has more depth by far, and the majority of these players are playing, you know, at a higher level. Um, there's more pedigree to this squad. He doesn't want them to be thinking about, you know, what happened 16 years ago. He wants this team to have its own identity. Could you talk to me about qualification? Um, you guys kind of ran through that group. You guys didn't lose. So, so how was qualification? Qualification was went far better than I expected, to be honest with you. I was speaking about it with my father, and he was very anxious, uh, especially about going away to the Burkina Bays and to the South Africans in particular. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think Cisse really comes into play. I mean, he wants us to write history in this tournament, but he's downplaying the type of changes he's made to reach the World Cup. I feel like he has relied on teams feeling that we might not have what it takes you know, to go the full 90. I mean, we have a lot of, as I said, there's a lot of flair there, but there's also a resilience that I don't think the Burkina Bays or the South Africans were expecting us to have, especially at their place. Um, the 2 nothing win in South Africa really cemented the kind of team we were going to be. And I think that we've, we've maintained that. I mean, it's not like you don't go and win these games quite easily. And if you watch African Cup of Nations or any African matches, for example, I mean, for that matter, it's rare that, you know, teams will consistently go on the road and win. So... To see that from this team is it's, it's exciting and it's it's kind of a reassuring thing to you know to know that they can do it on the road because we're going to be pretty far from home when they go to Russia. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, you say that, and I was just thinking just about African teams, whether it's Nigeria. I guess we we can kind of include France in that. Like, no, no, we can, we totally can. Yeah, I will. I will grandfather them in. Like, <laughs> going to Russia is going to be an interesting experience, just in terms of like the racial dynamics and, and things of that sort. Bro, so, I, it's so I don't want to cut you off. I'm sorry, but just it's funny you say that because just today the RFU, the Russian Football Union, was fined twenty two thousand pounds for racist chants um, from their match back in March against France. Ironically, so. It's it's quite amazing. A that FIFA finds that a twenty two thousand pound fine is good enough. As <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really know what they think is going to happen with that money, um, or why they think that that's going to be enough of a like of a deterrent. It's really just a slap on the wrist. One where they're trying not to draw too much attention to a the racism and b their you know frankly laughable sanction. And then there's a second part to this, and that is it's not just Senegal. It's not just Nigeria. It's there's Northern African nations. There's South American nations. True. I don't see how these sorts of blatant racist chants that have been polluting the Russian Premier League and any matches played in that country for the last, I don't know, since we've had reportable print media, you know, I don't know how that's going to be smoothed over. I mean, especially when they have a guy there, he's actually a former Chelsea player, his name is Alexis Smirton. He denied the existence of racism in Russia as recently as April of 2017. He then walked back those comments in about three or four interviews where people must have been like, listen, dude, you got to get your, you got to get this correct because <laughs> a lot of flack and we can't have this. So he goes, okay, well, it might exist, but it, it's only being brought here by foreigners. Then most recently, this is at the end of um, April, he was saying how anything that might happen, any racist incident, any chanting, any of that is basically something in his opinion. And this is, I, honestly, this is actually crazy. I don't know if he believes this or if he's saying it for a soundbite. He said, I cannot say, this is a direct quote from the Agence France Presse, I cannot say that racist incidents happen more often in Russian football than in other countries. We cannot fail to take the political situation into account. There is a certain bias against Russia in this respect. So he, he said his racist com or he said comments about racism that were just laugh laughable, then he walked him back. Now, as recently as two weeks ago, he's saying that he doesn't think they happen more often there. And then right on cue, two weeks later, FIFA slaps him with a sanction. So I'm interested to see how they respond to this, but I highly anticipate it 
racist incidents at this World Cup. Which is a shame. And, you know, I, I wonder, do, do you feel like that's going to affect Senegal? Uh, just, just if we can narrow it down to Senegal, do you feel like it's going to affect you guys if, if something like that happens? I'm, I'm hoping that it kind of goes smooth. But then I say that, and I should probably ask you this question. What are your expectations or what are the expectations for Senegal in just like the everyday person? Well, to, to answer the first part of the question, I do think it's going to affect not only Senegal, but all African teams. I think that's going to be a major play. I mean, your fans being at matches, especially in the group stage, it's so important. I can remember, I can remember all the way back, you know, every World Cup, seeing some matches and having a pocket of fans. The players still hear them. The players still celebrate with them. And it's, it's, it makes a difference, especially when you're on foreign soil, to have, you know, to know that there are people in the stadium who are backing you. But the second part of that is my expectation for Senegal, and I said this before, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put them on a pedestal right now. I don't want them to, I, I just want them to get out of the group. That's the only thing I'm thinking of. I think once they achieve that, they'll really have some self-belief because on, to get there, they've got to beat some quality teams. Colombia is not a walkover. Japan, neither. The first match is huge, of course, but maybe if they squeak by and get a draw on that, I still would believe that they have a chance just because, you know, there's a whole, a whole lot that can happen between the other matches, between the rest of the, the groups in their the teams in their group. So my expectation is that they're gonna, they will leave the group, but that's all I'm looking for. I think to to go too far ahead or to expect too much from them in that sense would be uh, getting ahead of ourselves. Now we we know the the Koulibaly's, the Mane's, the Kuyates, all those guys. But who are some players you would pinpoint that you feel like, okay, this is basically the group of death, or maybe the second group of death? Who do you feel is like a, a maybe a couple of players who you feel like this guy's going to get his move? Maybe go from the Belgian league or the French league into like the Premier League. Yeah, because a lot of these guys, like you, know, you probably know, there's probably a lot of them operate in the in the league league. It helps to speak the language, and all, and a lot of those the clubs in Senegalese Premier um, are feeder clubs for these French clubs. But as for players to, to watch, I would watch um, Bayern Yang. He's a Milan-owned, currently on loan at Torino. He, you know, he came kind of burst onto the scene about three or four years ago. And, you know, he's kind of been lost in the shuffle since then. I think he needs to be made to feel like he's the man, you know, like he's the front guy. It's interesting because Cisse, he likes to play a 4-3-3. And Bayern Yang isn't as mobile as, as Sadio Mane or even Musa So. I mean, I, I hesitate to believe that he'll be getting starts in that position. Maybe he's the super sub who comes on and, and wins the game or gets an insurance goal here or there. But I think he's a good guy, guy to watch in Bayern Young. Also, and he's at, at midfield, is Ismail Assar. And this guy, in my opinion, he's the guy who could have a breakout tournament. Uh, he is a right-sided winger, but he plays in the midfield. And he, he, he'll get goals, and especially in wide areas, that prevent Mane from having to go out and and do everything, if you know what I mean. Like Instead of him having to be pulled out of position to go get the ball and retrieve it and then make the attack only to go and score it himself, you need these players, especially players who can fill in, in a position. So um, Banyang, Ismail Asar, and then there's also Barundjai. Uh, he's a midfielder. I, I don't want to say too much you know, to expect that this will happen and then it doesn't happen at all, but he, he played at Stoke City, and he didn't impress overly. But what he does is he does provide a little bit of tempo to the midfield. And at Stoke City, you don't necessarily see that, to be fair. But when he was at Osmanlispor and uh, in, the, in the Turkish in the Turkish division, he he was the reason that they were able to to connect the tax. I mean, he never seems like he doesn't want the ball. He never seems like he's out of his depth. However, on Stoke, I feel like he had he was tasked with too much. And I mean, frankly, that team had more issues than just at midfield. And finally, uh, this may not actually happen, but people people have been speaking about Kita uh, Kita Balde. He's on. He's a winger from Monaco, and he's the kind of player who is really exciting. I think he has something up his sleeve that maybe people haven't seen from him yet. So I'm looking at him. 
I'm asking this one to everybody. Who do you feel is going to win the World Cup? Hmm. Well, wow. I don't know. I, I haven't I haven't honestly considered the options, but I I guess I'm going to go with a, with a sure, safe bet, and that's Germany or Spain. They have too much depth. It's just crazy. I mean, I looked, I looked at their – I mean, France is like that too. I don't know. I don't know. Germany, Spain, France. France, France Germany, and Spain have legit they have the most depth. three 11s. Like if they wanted to, they could field three world-class 11s that could yeah. probably get to like a quarterfinal. Exactly. Each team would be able to get there. So – I don't know, man. That's that's a tough one, but I don't I don't necessarily think it's going to be an African team. Not this time. Uh that, that was going to be my next question. I guess, <laughs> like, which African team do you feel like is going to go the furthest? And don't I I don't want you to jinx your squad. So I don't want to you, say Senegal just because of you know I'm I'm I only want one thing from them. That's to get out of the group. I would really like to see Egypt do well. I think I love their story and the in the qualification, and I, I'm a big Mohamed Salah fan. I just I would love it for them, and I think as a country they need it. It's been tough for Egypt in the last. Uh, five to seven years, and I think this is, this could be great for them. The way that football united the country during uh, their World Cup run, I think it, it would be great for them to get something more out of it. All right, so I only got one more question, I think. Uh, what's something I haven't asked you that you feel like particularly interesting about the Senegalese national team that you feel like people should know or might want to know? Mm, that is a good question. Hmm. All of my family on my on my dad's side, he's the oldest of nine brothers and sisters. They all live in Senegal still, except for one. Uh, who lives in Indianapolis. And I've been speaking with them about it, even during qualifications and stuff, you know, bantering back and forth about the team, et cetera. And it's been interesting to get the pulse of the, you know, the native Senegalese fan who's waited for this for the last 15, 16 years. And even those fans who didn't believe in 2002 and were shocked and 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 sort of developed a following at the time, I don't think that they're ready for, you know, how good this Senegalese team is. I think there's a lot of doubt. I think there's also a lot of you know, just ignorance about the team, basically. Um, not, not many players are playing locally anymore, not as much as they used to, you know, pre-2002. And because of that, it's harder to keep a track on who's doing what and where. So what they see is, obviously, they see Sadio Mane succeeding. But there's a lot of players in the Senegalese ranks who have quietly made their ways into really quality teams in top leagues. And I think the level of belief for the native Senegalese fan, it's going to go up immensely during this tournament. There's even going to be some surprises for the actual Senegalese people. So that in and of itself to me is probably the most exciting aspect about the Senegalese team, that there's there's so much potential there. And I don't even think that their own fans and the people in Senegal uh, um, know about it. It'll be nice to see them have a breakout tournament. And even if they don't, they're still putting Senegal on the map. So I'm all about it. I did a what we did as, as a Dan documentary, and uh, we we were looking at like basically Zinedine Zidane in the World Cup, and we looked at 2002, mm-hmm. and uh, I looked at the French t- uh, the, the the French team that played the Senegal team yeah. in in 2002 when uh, Jop scored the goal, mm-hmm. and I, I was looking at the team, and I was like, all of these players play in France. Maybe yeah. There might there may be like one or two, one that, or did two. It that that weren't based in France. Then I like just before this interview, I was just let me look who's who's in the squad. Let me get a general feel of it. They're everywhere. They're in England. They're in France. They're in Belgium. They're Turkey. They're they're in so many places that I would think like in two thousand two, it might have been easier to get a grasp of that team because they were all in the same country generally. Exactly. Whereas now they're just spread all over, which is good. Um, it's it's different from maybe England, where all your players play in England, so they only play one way. Or yep. Russia, where all your players play in the Russian Premier League, so you only play one way. So it's it's good that you know you get a little taste of the English league. You know, Koulibaly's in Serie A. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's a good thing. But as you say, for the local guy, yo, there's so much to keep track of that we don't really know who's in form here, who's doing what, where. So 
Yeah, and to be honest, most Senegalese people aren't living the life where they've got you know access to like every single cable channel or exactly. you know, online subscriptions to this league or that league. So what they're seeing a lot of the time are the main leagues. They're seeing highlights from the Premier League, Sadio Mane, obviously. They're seeing highlights from Champions League. They're going to be probably seeing highlights from some maybe Syria with Khalidou Koulibaly, but nothing is going to be getting to them from Turkey, from Russia, you know, from even from America, where there's some Senegalese players too. So you're right on that sense. And I think it's important people, a lot of people are going to have their eyes open, whether they're Senegalese or not. I feel this is going to be the most exciting group out of all, all, all the groups. I, I think Colombia and Senegal go through, but I could easily see a situation in, where in which Poland get through mm. and Senegal don't. So yeah. I, I'm, so Colombia for sure. Japan no. are, in it, are in and around, but as you say, like uh, their fans and people who observe the team aren't necessarily that confident. So yeah, I'm going Colombia first, Senegal second, but again, wouldn't be surprised, especially if Lewandowski's on form, if Poland can can get that second spot and Senegal have to go home. Even if I don't want it to happen, I something just tells me Colombia, Poland to go through. I'm biased, obviously, you know. <laughs> what, what, what did Issa Rae say? I'm rooting for everybody black. Black, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, same, same. And because the African nation hasn't reached the semifinal in the history of the World Cup, that's 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 what I'm hoping. And Senegal definitely has the attacking talent, at least to get there. But yeah, that's been our Group H preview. Um, again, I'd like to thank Dan. I'd like to thank Simon, Amadi, and I'd like to thank Christopher f- uh, for joining us and helping us. So yeah, World Cup is in two days. Hopefully, if you guys haven't listened to groups A, B, C, D, E, F, or G, go listen to those. Some really, really dope conversations that we've been able to have uh, with different people and amongst ourselves. So um, we really appreciate it. I'm Daniel Taluk on Twitter. Half Hope, where can the people find you? You can find me at Half Hope Ports, Half Hope, Double H. And the Half Hope Football Hut, I'm sure, is going to be filled with previews, reviews, reactions of damn near every game. People can talk about the work rate of N'Golo Kante, but Half Hope (laughs) is for sure. When the World Cup and Euros appear, yeah, that work rate is crazy. Next week, I think we'll have the band back together. And, you know, we'll be reacting to uh, to the matches, giving you reviews of the week, previews of the week, all that kind of stuff. So stay locked in to Talking Tactics. You can find us on Twitter at Talking Tactics, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud. Leave iTunes reviews and we'll read them on the show next week. And, uh, yeah, I'm just super excited for the World Cup is all I can say. So um, we'll see you guys next week. Peace. Stay blessed. Sports Social Podcast Network.